I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. This is Cal Raustiala, co-host of uh, International Law Behind the Headlines, and I'm happy to welcome you back to another episode of our podcast. Today we have as our guest, Kathleen Claussen, Associate Professor at the University of Miami Law School. And she has recently published an article in the American Journal of International Law, our, our house and flagship journal, uh, entitled The Perils of Pandemic Exceptionalism. And the article is part of a larger special issue about COVID and its impact on international law. And so I've asked Kathleen to come on to discuss her very interesting piece written with two co-authors and uh, give us a little deeper insight into it. So Kathleen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Cal. Great to be here. Terrific. So I thought what we could first do for listeners is just very briefly lay out the thesis of your piece and uh, maybe tell us a bit about how you and your co-authors came to write it, why you chose this topic. Sure. Um, So this piece is written together with Julian Arado from Brooklyn Law School and Ben Heath at Temple uh, Beasley School of Law. And this is a project that I think our work has been circling around for some time, our joint work. We've all sort of been thinking in this space. And so it was such a pleasure to have the opportunity to write it together and to be a part of this terrific Agora. We were so honored to be in this great group of of pieces covering the pandemic and international law. And at heart, this is an essay that raises concern about what we see as a growing exceptions paradigm in our international economic law. And by that, I mean a paradigm of justification according to which deviations from the primary rules are sort of absolved by way of exceptions, either express or implied, and in which claims of exception can be expected to proliferate. So we take the normative position that we shouldn't focus only on the exceptions, on exceptionalism as it has come to be. And then we set out a a rather open-ended research program on which we we hope to build. Um, As I said, a lot of our, our individual work has been in the same sort of vein, and I think there's a lot, to, lot more to say. So just in brief, to elaborate on that, on that normative position, we argue that the pandemic reveals there's a weakness to exceptionalism and a need for a new paradigm. So the pandemic, or more precisely, the way that we anticipate states are going to respond to it, demonstrates how exceptionalism creates significant risks for the legitimacy of international trade and investment and also for the stability of that system. So given these risks, we then go on to propose modest structural changes that we think could could better calibrate the relationship between what is now the the norm, the liberalization principle that guides those rules and other values. And and therefore, that would help us better manage future crises. Terrific. So I want to press you a little bit on some of the underlying concepts at play in this piece, and your description was very good and I think very clear on it. But, you know, one question I had immediately was to to what degree is the phenomenon that you're describing of, of norms and exceptions and an increasing use of exceptions, something that predates the pandemic? And additionally, do you foresee this pandemic will end at some point and hopefully soon? 
Do you foresee this continuing? That seems to be a position you take in the paper, but I'm less sure about the first part, whether this is something that's, that was already out there and the pandemic is just, in essence, accelerating it. I think that's true. Uh, we, we're using the pandemic as somewhat of a case study for a larger phenomenon that, that we've identified. As I said, sort of in our individual work, you see this when it, when it comes to national security justifications and exceptions, right? An increased use and reliance on, on those sorts of exceptions. Uh, and, but the pandemic is one that we think really will accelerate and deepen its use in problematic ways beyond what many scholars are talking about in the security space. Uh, and I can say more about sort of the, the ways we see that playing out. But then in terms of your, your second part of your question as to the future, uh, we mentioned briefly that, that climate change is one area where there's been some talk about states wanting to create more exceptions to accommodate the ways in which they might address climate change or better respond to it. And so there, you might expect to see carve outs and, and sort of other waivers that, that they might want to use. And our view is that there again, uh, going forward, no matter how generous uh, they are, th those exceptions will continue to reinforce a view that we find to be problematic, again, at heart, that the existing rules are insufficiently flexible to allow states to confront global problems and pressing problems such as climate change. So, so yes, so on, on both points of your question, this is something we've seen before. This is something we expect to see again, but the pandemic is really, uh, in a way, a poster child for what's happening. And that in itself is part of the problem. Great. So let's talk about that problem a little more. So what is so bad about reliance on exceptions? Well, to be sure, I should say that we're speculating that the measures that states have taken in response to the pandemic are going to accelerate or going to lead to dispute settlement. Um, so the, the exceptions, of course, play out in the context of dispute settlement. And so far, there have been some, some rumblings of disputes under both trade and investment regimes. But the likelihood of those disputes is, is likely to, to increase um, the longer both the pandemic drags on and the longer that states rely on the pandemic as a reason to do to take certain actions uh, in that, that have impacts on, on trade and investment. But so so thinking that, OK, there are going to be disputes that will that will arise. And we've heard, as I said, um, at least one very concrete one having to do with Peru that, that seems in the works on the investment side. If that were to come to pass, then as states rely on exceptionalism in those disputes, we raise two, two risks, two primary concerns. First is that reliance on exceptions reinforces the perception that our ordinary obligations that states have in trade investment instruments forbid the kinds of measures that they're taking now to respond. So put differently, it's, it's, a, it's a misunderstanding or perceived under flexibility of the existing primary rules, such that justifying pandemic measures only through exceptions may imply that similar measures would likely violate those same rules under less extreme circumstances. Moreover, this exceptionalism could decrease flexibility in the system if we start to think about the pandemic as the as the model, right? If, if it becomes the, the singular public health emergency, that might over time suggest that lesser disruptions would not qualify for exceptions. It's, it's, it's too good of an example, if that makes sense, right? It creates an anchoring effect. So the more we emphasize it, the more we run the risk of raising the threshold of what is needed to substantiate a claim of exception. And alternatively, we want to preserve the flexibility of the system, but, but using the pandemic 
as the keystone could have this decentering effect. So that's, that's the first concern, sort of with a couple different layers to it. And the second concern is, is how the exceptions paradigm tends to expand the disciplinary reach of trade and investment adjudication, uh, particularly into the realm of health law. And we have some doubts as to whether the, the sort of average, if you will, uh, international economic law lawyer, the, the adjudicator, whether they're prepared, have the mandate or the expertise to decide some very difficult questions related to global health law. Interesting. So can you tell us a little more about the Peru case, or it sounds like maybe it's not yet a case that you referenced just a moment ago? Sure, just, just briefly, uh, what we knew about and has heard about this earlier this spring was that Peru had suspended toll collection uh, on certain highways, um, and we can understand why, or to try and get medical equipment uh, and other necessities uh, to people more easily in the course of the pandemic. And, and that, frankly, is, is in line with a lot of the types of measures we've seen from other states. You have states uh, that are you know, imposing export controls. You have states that are uh, nationalizing their healthcare providers, uh, creating subsidies for domestic companies, trying to prioritize domestic production. All of these sorts of measures, there are, there are sort of two different categories. One that is more trade liberalizing to move things more quickly. And you might put the, the Peruvian measure in, in that category, get things moving along. Most of the time, that's not a problem for our existing rules. Um, but on the other hand, you have these, these more restrictive measures, the export controls, the compulsory restrictions and cancellations of public contracts that tend to be more problematic. In the case of the Peruvian one, it's an investment, it's a potential investment concern because it turns out that the, 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 uh, the highway toll collection system was partly owned by private foreign private investors. And so right then they lose that revenue and, and there's the potential for a, a, an investment case where investors, uh, for folks who are familiar with international investment law will know, investors are able to raise claims either of expropriation if they can't make their products anymore due to the government measure or if their business gets nationalized or, or a failure on the part of the state to provide full protection or security, fair and equitable treatment, some of the key, the key protections under bilateral investment treaties. So foreign investors have the opportunity to then bring those cases against the state. And so that's what we've heard from these foreign toll collection companies uh, in working in Peru in response to the Peruvian measure to, to stop the collection of tolls. So in terms of the, the risks posed by this paradigm, you gave us a couple of reasons to be, to be concerned. Um, but I want to understand the paradigm itself a little bit better, and I guess what the alternatives are. So, so can you can you explain what you think is a better alternative to, you know, I can imagine someone stepping back and saying, well, we have rules and we have exceptions. That's uh, you know a pretty standard way of thinking about the use of rules. Um, but you're kind of refining that concept a little bit and critiquing it. Give us a, a, a an alternative that you prefer and explain why it's better. Sure. So, so just to elaborate very briefly on the types of rules we're talking about and types of exceptions uh, for those working outside this space, uh, under our existing international economic law regime, particularly the rules of the World Trade Organization and, and international investment agreements that I mentioned a moment ago, we, we do allow certain types of measures like those that have been used uh, that I referred to by states already in this pandemic they, that we permit prohibitions or restrictions on exports of products, for example, but only when those are temporarily applied 
or they're limited to essential products, or there's certain, there's certain criteria that they must follow. So we have some of that built in to the system, but then if you go beyond those, those criteria, then, then the exceptions could kick in, right? And these are exceptions that could be measures necessary to protect human life and health is, is one. Another, we mentioned earlier as well, necessary to measures necessary to protect essential security interests uh, that would include action taken in time of emergency. So the system is designed to be flexible to allow states to use these justifications very clearly in trade and maybe less clearly in investment, but, but still exceptions are there and, and in more recent investment agreements increasingly there. Um, and, and more than that, again, they're likely to be re relied upon in, in response to the pandemic. And some states have notified certain measures they've taken to the WTO and mentioned that they're operating under the exception. But when we see that as a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, it does provide the flexibility they need to act. But on the other hand, it has those risks that we just discussed. So what do we do instead? So it's not to say there's no place for exceptions, but we have we make three recommendations, um, near term, medium term, and long term. Uh, in the near term is a recommendation that we that actors in the system reconsider the division of labor, so to speak, between rules and exceptions. That is, exceptions aren't the only way to accommodate extraordinary events like the pandemic. And so now may be the time to sort of resuscitate the view that has been a minority view, I think it's fair to say, that trade adjudicators, for example, should consider regulatory aims, whereas they tend to only consider regulatory effects under our trade jurisprudence, if I can use the term. Uh, when they're deciding whether a measure discriminates, for example, against like products, one typical analysis that you see in trade law. Or investment law, we could ask whether obligations like fair and equitable treatment ought to impose a, a blanket and justiciable requirement of reasonableness uh, toward foreign investors, or whether its application should be more limited on its face. So, so there's space within our, our existing primary rules that could accommodate some of these measures without having us to resort, having us resort to exceptions as we tend, as we tend to do. So that's that's the near-term recommendation. In the medium term, we point to this over-reliance on dispute settlement. As I was saying, th this all will play out in, in cases that we think are likely to arise as time goes on here. Uh, and, and, and another lesson from the pandemic is, is that cooperation is key in this space and time. And, and so as states have been using dispute settlement more and more in the absence of their ability to negotiate new rules, that's increasingly problematic in moments like this. Finally, our, our third recommendation is, is more big picture. It is with respect to accommodating health, environmental protection, all these other things we've talked about, as uh, treating them as, as part of our central part of our regime. Right? We tend to have a sort of commerce first stance meaning that we, we prioritize our trade and investment rules without thinking about their health implications or, or other uh, implications. And maybe we need to think about a regime where health and, and other public, uh, public concerns, public interest issues are a part of that same conversation so that the pandemic gives us an opportunity to imagine what our institutions would look like if they were driven by these other values rather than by commerce. How much latitude do we have at this point? So let's take that last point in particular. 
it seems like that's an issue that would be better addressed in the negotiation phase of, let's say, a bilateral and multilateral agreement or regime. Is it something that we can really recalibrate after the fact? And, and how might we do that? No, you're totally right. I think that is something that is hard to change, which is why we have put it as a long-term goal. We're at a such a critical time with our international institutions, even apart from the pandemic, uh, that it would be something that would have to be taken on uh, in the coming years, right? It's not the short-term fix. Uh, but we, we had to ask that same question, frankly, back in 2008, 2009, when we we're dealing with the financial crisis, and we, we sort of fumbled around. And, and so these health and science questions are even more challenging. We haven't wrestled with them. Uh, but, but if there's any sign that we need to do that better, it is this one. Uh, and so I, I'm hopeful, I think we, we, we would suggest that there's more space to do that, even if it takes some time till the political ingredients uh, align. Great. And so just as a kind of leading towards the end of our discussion, you talk about both trade and investment in your piece. I'm assuming those are the only two areas that you're focused on. But if there's if there's another, let me know. But between the two, uh, which seems to have the bigger problem with regard to this kind of parallel of exceptionalism? Those those are the two areas on which we focus. That's It's true. Um, there there are different incentives in each, and maybe it's worth just saying a bit about, about that. Um, of course, in the, in the trade context, as listeners will be aware, the disputes would be between states. And when, when our WTO are under our free trade agreements, uh, the typical uh, approach here is, is states bringing disputes against other states for measures they have undertaken. Uh, and in that context, there's less rumblings, to use my earlier term, there are fewer rumblings about about the possibility of disputes at this present moment related to the pandemic, uh, possibly under a sort of glass house theory, right? That everyone is trying to address the current problem. States are doing everything they can. They're undertaking all sorts of measures. Um, and, and so maybe there's a bit of a lat latitude there or some you know, give, give a free pass to each other now and, and look the other way until we get a little farther down the road. Now, I, I do think, as I said earlier, that that could change uh, the longer that uh, states have to deal with this and the more they, they may use pandemic, theoretically pandemic-related measures to as a veil for what are really protectionist measures are part of another agenda. Uh, but, but at the moment, um, the, I think there's little incentive there for states to be complaining about one each other's different, uh, different measures. On the investment side, and the Peru example that we mentioned is, is, uh, is a good one for, in this respect because uh, the, the incentives are entirely different where we have now private investors that have been harmed, right? private investors that, that are at risk of closing, they huge, experience huge losses, um, whatever the case may be they have no glass house problems to deal with, right? They're only worried about their own survival. And in that instance, um, that might be a place where we see greater uh, incidence of, of disputes. Someone that is, there's less reason for investors not to, to sort of push on that opportunity uh, than there would be in the trade space. So, so I think that that's probably a part of it. Um, I should also just say that I, there are contexts outside of the, the trade and, and investment dispute settlement contexts uh, where states are certainly trying to be responsive. And, and so that may, 
we may see uh, other opportunities outside of these regimes where states try to balance the need for uh, to respond to COVID with some of these other concerns. So you see, for example, the G20 has put out a few statements about what states could do to help uh, avoid um, uh, problems and, and what they should be doing to uh, respond better to COVID while not running afoul of, of the rules. And so, so a general sort of um, conversation, I think, is ongoing among states that we're working on this together, we're all in this together, and um, no matter what happens sort of in our dispute settlement systems, there is some diplomatic effort underway to, to get through the crisis together. But it does sound like in the investment context, it may be more difficult to, to recalibrate in the way you're proposing because it is so much more decentralized and because the actors are so much more decentralized. Is that, is that your impression, that it may be more promising in trade, putting aside all the problems the WTO, for example, faces at the moment? Yes, that, that's true. It's, it's more complicated at a few different levels. The one that you mentioned is one. Um, I, I didn't describe this earlier, but there are um, the, the exceptions within the investment regime are slightly more complicated in the, in the way that they're, um, they're either the way the jurisprudence, so to speak, has has uh, proceeded in that area, as well as the, the change over time of what we've seen in investment agreements as to whether they have explicit exceptions and what they say. So, so it's, it's slightly differently situated in that respect as well. Um, you're right that, that probably the bigger obstacle in the trade space is, is the current uh, larger uh, trade politics um, situation. But, um, but right, there, there's the, the greater risk for litigation and investment and the more difficulty likewise in making changes there. Um, on the other hand, the investment regime characterized by, as you said, this decentralized uh, system um, also means that there's, they're characterized by largely bilateral agreements. And theoretically, bilateral agreements should be an area where you could have more flexibility to make changes than you would in the trade system that where you need a multilateral response, right, it's largely done by consensus. Um, and so, so the negotiating space on the investment side is, is somewhat, should be somewhat uh, easier and, and um, more responsive than maybe what we're seeing in trade. So, so it's not all negative, as to say, there, there could be some, some change happening in the investment space but that comes more easily than in trade. Great, great. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on and uh, really interesting and thought-provoking piece in the current issue of the American Journal. And we hope to have you back on the podcast sometime soon. Thanks so much, Cal. And also on behalf of, of Julian and Ben, thanks for thinking of our, our essay. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. Great.